I've really did all I could to give it a shot and to try to go and see if this is really that different in, in Silicon Valley. I guess I had all this idea about how more open-minded, more futuristic uh, San Francisco and Silicon Valley was. Maybe I can dive a bit deeper about that later. In, in many ways, it was. In others, it wasn't. But at the end of the day, I still felt much more at home here compared to France. And so after that six-month exchange uh, program ended, I did what I could to battle the U.S. immigration system and get another visa and stay here to work. And I haven't looked back since then. And I've been in, uh, in California in this area for about nine years now. Hi, welcome to Courage, a podcast about love and wisdom, a space dedicated to sharing interesting life stories to enable us to reconnect with the deeper meaning of courage, to ultimately inspire you to live from your heart. I'm your host, Valeria Soler. Be on the lookout for a new episode coming out every Tuesday with new fascinating guests and discussion topics relevant to your personal development and spirituality. Thank you for joining me today. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining me again here today. I am with one of uh, my dearest friends, Roman Paulus. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Yes. So today, in this uh, very special episode of Courage, one that I uh, haven't had in my mind to do for a long time, to explore this incredible person I've just gotten to meet through like chance and uh, technology um, that has actually had a huge impact on me without maybe having that intention. So um, I would like to share who Roman is, what he has um, lived, and maybe you can connect with it as well and be curious about it and be inspired to also uh, follow this free path that I feel that he has. Um, so thank you so much for being here and I'm super excited to dive right in. Me too, I'm happy to share anything you'd like to know. Okay. So Roman, introduce us a bit about your life, who you are, um, and a bit of like what you're about. Yeah, of course. So my name is Romain in French. Uh, I'm 29. I'm going to turn 30 in uh, less than two weeks, actually. So a pretty big step for me. Uh, so I grew up around Paris um, in Versailles. If uh, any of you know where Versailles is, maybe you've seen where the castle was. If you've been traveling to Paris, it's not really that far, but culturally it felt very different. Uh, my family wasn't really like this, but the, the school environment where I uh, grew up in Versailles was very traditional, very conservative, very religious. And it really felt like kind of weird to me that what I've experienced around me in school and in Versailles was just not what I pictured the rest of the world to be. But this is still where I was stuck in. And I think maybe that shaped my desire to like live in more than one place and like escape kind of where you're supposed to be by default. And so I stayed around Paris, went to college there, studying computer science and engineering. And towards the end of my college years, I had the chance to do an exchange program at Stanford. And it was only going to be for six months, but because I was already kind of tired of living there, I really did all I could to 
give it a shot and to try to go and see if this is really that different in, in Silicon Valley. I guess I had all this idea about how more open-minded, more futuristic uh, San Francisco and Silicon Valley was. Maybe I can dive a bit deeper about that later. In, in many ways, it was. In others, it wasn't. But at the end of the day, I still felt much more at home here compared to France. And so after that six-month uh, exchange program ended, I did what I could to battle the U.S. immigration system and get another visa and stay here to work. And I haven't looked back since then. And I've been in, uh, in California in this area for about nine years now. And so when I was here, most of the time I did work in software engineering, a little bit in uh, artificial intelligence research as well. But last year I was really, I think, hitting some sort of dead end in my motivation to continue in that field. And I think it wasn't just the field itself, it's just the the last job that I chose to work at was not exactly what I expected. And that made me question a lot of things about my long-term career, what motivates me to get work done. Uh, realized that the things that used to motivate me nine years ago are not the things that I'm into today. And because of that, I took a break from working in tech. And for the past year, I've just been trying to learn how to make electronic music uh, as much as I can. It's been a slow, long process, but I'm really happy with where it's going. So that's like a little bit of an overview of what I've been doing for the past 29 years, but we can dive deeper into any of these. All right, so um, as I've told you earlier, one of the things that I, ad I admire most about you that I feel like the world needs more of is uh, kind of tapping into that freedom and that um, playing things through and experimenting and experiencing and, op and being open-minded. Um, you know, not so full of prejudices and you have such incredible stories of when you did the van life and you lived in your van and traveled the, uh, around doing photography, doing urban exploration. Uh, some of your passions are very inspiring to me as well. And I would like maybe to share a bit more of like uh, what it's been like for you, the van life, the urban exploration, uh, some of these like things that like are so passionate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. Maybe I can share a little bit about why I felt so confident doing these things. I, I think I owe a lot of that to my parents who uh, took me traveling when I was pretty young to other countries multiple times. Um, how how eye-opening these different trips have been has varied from one to the other. Sometimes it's just as simple as going to like a vacation resort in North Africa and Tunisia, which is not like the most the most groundbreaking kind of trip you can take. But as a young child, knowing that you can go to other countries and that you can have a great time and doesn't have to feel unsafe, um, that's I realized later a chance that many kids and teenagers did not have, especially in the U.S., where so many Americans choose to travel within the U.S. rather than outside. I used to be a bit judgmental of that attitude actually, but then I realized the U.S. is ginormous, and you can see all kinds of diverse landscapes and people by staying in there. So I'm not going to judge people too harshly for not living in the U.S., but it does create some sense that your country is the only safe one and outside is a bit unsafe. So I think that's what gave me freedom to like mentally 
travel. And as I've mentioned before, I never really felt quite comfortable in the place where I grew up. So I didn't see a strong reason to stay there. Now for the van life thing, I didn't really think about it until like maybe three or four years into me coming to the US. Um, by the time I decided to buy a van and convert it myself, uh, it has already been like kind of a huge trend. Uh, I was following this subreddit a lot called uh, Van Dwellers. Uh, people just sharing both amazing pictures and also just the true story of the trade-offs they have to make when they live the van life. Some advice that they might give to people trying to do that. And because of that, I was able to design my van the exact way that I wanted. And that's also something that I was really happy about. I love to just build my own stuff. That's what got me into being a software engineer in the first place. And I thought it was just more fun, more, more fun adventure to just do it myself. And so some trade-offs that I did, for example, in my van, I did not have a bathroom. Uh, I figured this is not that big of a deal. I can use public restrooms in national parks, in forests, in grocery stores, in restaurants. And that's worked pretty well up until the pandemic. And I can talk a bit more about the pandemic and its impact on the van life later, at least for me. Um, but also one thing I thought was going to be the hardest to get used to is just my van isn't the most spacious. And I knew that going into it. I wanted to have a van that I could park almost anywhere. So I didn't want to take like two parking spots. I didn't want to have to stick to trailer parts. That's why I chose a van and not an RV, not a trailer. Um, but it meant I had to do a little bit of downsizing. But because Silicon Valley being the way it is in terms of housing, I was already used to having a very small housing when I moved here. I was living in a studio near Stanford campus, which was by many accounts like a great place to live. But the space I had wasn't like the most grandiose. So that kind of downsizing was actually not that big of a deal for me. It's not like I got used to like a huge house. And even right now, like I, I don't live in my van anymore. I live in a real house, but it's, it's pretty small house. It's mostly because it has lots of nature around there that I chose it. And so all of these made it pretty easy for me to, to jump the gun. And I guess I, after reading a lot of people's accounts of people being very happy about it, um, I really felt that I this is what I should do. Uh, I also did quite a bit of research on maybe the the cultural reactions and the legal reactions to people living in their vans, and this is a pretty sad thing that I have many conflicting views on. Uh, especially in California, the past few years, people tend to associate living in your van with homelessness, and so because people are pretty protective of their neighborhoods and they don't want homeless people to move into. Uh, they've also enacted laws against people living in their vans. You cannot outright ban people living in their vehicles. Uh, that's something the Supreme Court has decided many times, um, as recently as 10 years ago. But they find the city and the local governments find ways around that to just make it harder to either park your van or neighbors will just call the police more often if they see your van. That actually happened to me at in my own neighborhood. Two weeks after I bought the van, it was completely empty, completely brand new, shiny. I did not sleep in it yet. And someone still called the cops and cops had to knock on my door to tell me that I cannot park my van for too long, which is technically true. But this is funny that they only noticed that for the van and not for my old car, which was always parked in the same place for the same amount of time. And so I had to get used very early to the fact that not everyone is happy with van life or they might have some negative stereotypes. 
so I avoid sleeping in the same neighborhood, the same parking spot for like more than one or two nights if I can. Uh, but when I went further east, like just basically anywhere outside of California or Oregon, people are just way more chill about it. They don't have this, uh, they're not on edge about potential homelessness the way that some people are in California. So I could just ask grocery stores if I can spend a night on their parking lot and they're like, yeah, why couldn't you? We don't really care. It's fine. So it's been interesting to see these kind of differences. And I'd say if you're thinking of doing the van life yourself, um, yeah, just do some research on where you want to go. Do you want to stay in your neighborhood? Do you want to go travel in other parts of the U.S.? Uh, try to have a plan in mind for the types of places where you feel comfortable sleeping. I know that where I feel comfortable sleeping might be the same as like a, a single woman traveling alone might be comfortable. And I totally recognize that. So it's not a one size fit all. Really, everyone can have their own level of comfort in what they want to do. All right. And um, now I would like to talk more about how was it like to work in Silicon Valley and to be part of the of the squad, like the tech bro squad, mm -hmm. uh, you know, being in like the most beautiful tower of San Francisco, the tallest and kind of understanding from within the the system, the technology, the companies and being able to be in that environment. Um, I think not a lot of people have the opportunity to see it from within. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious, like, how, what, how was it for you? Yeah, very good question. And actually, I was reflecting on that recently. I don't know if you know the, the TV show Silicon Valley. It's on HBO. Uh, this is one of my favorite shows ever. But the show has ended, it ended like a few years ago. Uh, it started around the same time when I moved to Silicon Valley to work and I felt like that show reflected my life in very accurate ways. There are just so many parallels between just the name of the bosses, locations, the type of stuff they work on. It's uh, people who wrote that show have really done their research. Some people that I've worked with even say it's too real and they don't think it's funny anymore. But I, I think it's a great show. But I was recently re-watching the first episodes that show that portray like a little bit of the tech optimism and the startup optimism of like eight, seven years ago. And I've realized I used to see myself in optimism at the time, but not anymore. Now I've just seen that there's just so much more that's not as glamorous, but not necessarily like awful or evil, but just tech is at the end of the day uh, an industry like other industries and people are in there to have a career to make money and making the world a better place can be like a, a nice side effect but it's far from the norm i would say um so going into it i was super excited super happy with being able to use my skills because i had gone to college for like computer science and engineering and i always felt that computer programmers in France were maybe not the most valued in most uh, industry circles. Mm -hmm. um, and I really felt that it was different here, that you have all these companies fighting for you whenever you have reached some level of career success. Uh, you can really tell that these companies are giving you like, great perks, great benefits, great pay. So I mean, that, that felt great, obviously. And I was also shocked, it was very small, but driving on the freeway from like Palo Alto to SF, 
Like I've never seen in my life billboards, ads that have like tech jargon on them. I was like, whoa, this place must really feel special if they are talking about JavaScript on a billboard. I would just never imagine that anywhere else, for example. So it really felt like this place was special for me. And I was also able to have like great in-depth technical conversations with people and they were not afraid of technological change the way that some people in mainstream France were. So, I mean, all of that made me feel amazing to be here. And I felt that way for the most part for the next few years, honestly. Um, overall, the work I was doing, especially early in my career, uh, was very interesting because I was a new grad. I was just sucking in knowledge, both like technical and about the life of a company since I, my first job was uh, being the first employee of a startup. So to me, it just felt great. Like I was learning so much. I was like accomplishing some stuff from time to time. Uh, yeah, and I guess I had an extra motivation because the immigration system is such that one of my only chances of staying in the US long term was to be good at my job and land like an employment-based visa and then an employment-based green card, which I guess I never fully admitted to myself that this was a motivation, but I've realized maybe this is what also made me not give up while I was faced with the tough challenges at work. And it's only after I got my green card that I felt my motivation like faltering a little bit. And actually I, I felt like I was slowing speed in terms of how much I was accomplishing to the point where I felt guilty staying in my in my role, in my position. And so I, I managed to take a, a complete year of work, which coincided with me finishing my van and traveling around the US. Because at that point, it was also 2017, shortly after the Trump election. And that reinforced to me that California is great, but it felt like a bubble. It felt like all of the national issues that people are talking about in political circles, in the media, like I could not find a single person in my life, uh, in my immediate circle who was openly pro-Trump. So it made me think there must be something else going on in this country that I just don't understand that I would love to get closer to. Uh, long story short, I still didn't meet a lot of Trump supporters on my trip and I went on to like 30 states. The, the most pro-Trump person I was able to talk with was a homeless person in Las Vegas. But he wasn't just pro-Trump, he was also uh, waist-deep in conspiracy theories that I've never heard of. So I had no interest of debating him on these conspiracy theories. I was just like sitting back and listening to him. But yeah, so that was like my one year of Silicon Valley. And then and when I got back... Um, Got back to my old job at Salesforce, but I shortly transitioned to a new startup called U.com, where we are trying to build a, a new, cap, new, new type of search engine. Um, that startup still exists. Go, go subscribe, go make an account. It's pretty fun. Um, and that's when I realized that second startup didn't really feel like the first one. It really felt like I wasn't learning as much anymore. Probably the work wasn't that different, but the, the novelty aspect of it had faded away for me. And that's when I started to question what's the next step in my career. Uh, talking to the, the CEO at the time, he really made me think that the next step for me should be to, to, to become a manager, which uh, I realized later that's, that's one view that some CEOs have about career progression. You progress by 
managing more and more people. Uh, what I had in mind was I would just become more and more of an expert of the, the mythical 10x programmer who can get more done on a technical problem. I'm a really hands-on. This is what really gets me going. I just love to solve problems. And I guess I could have tried to be a manager if my if my livelihood depend on it, but it didn't feel like this is what I got in tech for. Yeah. And it just made me think of the Peter principle of people being promoted to their highest level of incompetence. And so it didn't feel like it was the right move for me. And that's why I started to question whether I should just work on something else entirely. And that's why I'm, I'm in music now. Okay. Yeah. That is so beautiful. Um, so the whole idea of my podcast is finding people that live a bit more from their hearts with the word courage and it coming from the word core, which is more heart. It's uh, listening to your heart uh, in spite of the whispers of your mind. Mm -hmm. And I feel like um, you have been able to do that kind of with the social part of living in the Bay Area with instances like, I don't know, Burning Man, with uh, polyamory, with psychedelics, with now you wanting to do music for a living and this really sparking your heart. Um, so I feel like you are somebody that follows that intuition very well and is actually quite balanced and well connected to what you really want out of life. Um, I would just like to dive into this like more social aspect of living in the Bay Area and talking about, um, for instance, Burning Man or or the community that gets formed around here from from these like principles of freedom. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to clarify something first about the voices of my mind versus the ones of my heart. Uh, all of these big steps I've taken in my life of like taking a year off, uh, living in the van and just quitting and working on music. Uh, this didn't really come naturally. And in fact, I had many, many, many doubts and lots of uncertainties before jumping ahead and doing it. I was always running scenarios in my head of what could go wrong. Would employers still like me if I don't work for a year? Uh, would people think I'm just giving up on life if I don't work in tech anymore? Um, I don't know if these questions were really reasonable, but these are questions that I felt like I had to ask myself before just jumping the gun. It wasn't like snap of a finger, I'm, I'm over this and I have to just do something else. I mean, it was as calculated as I could make it, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, you were talking about the social aspect of uh, life in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the Bay Area is huge and you have many subcultures, many sub-social circles. Some are more prevalent here than in other cities, like the whole subculture around Burning Man and the intersection it has with tech, I would say. That totally makes for like a more open-minded culture in some degree, let's say like degree of like being open to new ideas around art and technology and what it means to have fun and live life and drugs as well. Um, so you would hear sometimes people say that people in California and the Bay Area are not open-minded when it comes to like politics or some like hot, hot button, like political issues. I can't really say that much about that, but I know that some people might not put the open mind label on everything. But regardless, yeah, after having traveled to other cities in the US, I could tell that this particular subculture was way more present here. And I I see myself a lot in it. Like, I don't think I'm 
I am the one who contributes the most in the burner culture locally, but I still enjoy recognizing myself in the contributions people make here. Um, uh, I would like to talk about your experience with your love life mm -hmm. a bit more because here it seems like a lot of people are poly, but elsewhere it's a very rare thing or very something that's kind of more intimate. It doesn't get talked about publicly. Or, um, it's a lot more in the private sphere and a, a bit more taboo. And in here, I feel like people are freer to talk about these things and to just feel into it and allow themselves the possibility for that to exist. Just, you know, believing that it's possible and doing it. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to share a bit more of your love life. Yeah, sure. So first, I would say it is indeed a little bit more common here, but it's really restricted to like SF and Oakland. But as soon as you go to like the suburbs or even like Stanford campus or San Jose, you don't have the same type of culture, I would say. Like I've I've never lived in SF or Auckland proper. I've always lived a little bit on the outskirts and it was actually hard for me to find people who had a similar view on relationships. Even on dating apps, I think people were like exposed to the idea, but more often than not, they were like, oh, this is fun, but it's just not for me. Which is still a step up from how I've seen people react to it in other cities in the US where one person on a dating app, I think he was in Boston, ask me if what I'm doing is a religious thing, like like polygamy, but no, no it's not. Um, and so I would say this, growing up in France, I was pretty much only exposed to monogamy. Uh, I had a, a long-term girlfriend that I met while I was in high school. We were together for seven years, always monogamous. Uh, she moved with me to the US actually the first year and it's only after I moved to the U.S. that I started hearing a little bit more about people promoting polyamory and open relationships and talking in like very detailed ways the fact that there is not a single way of doing this. This is really up to you and your partner or partners and just that like communication is key about what you both want. But I guess it just sounds so simple and I was almost mad that no one had told me that this was an option or that... I mean, I knew that having more than one sexual partner was an option, but not that it could be considered serious, I would say. And upon learning that, it also took me months of self-reflection and projecting scenarios in my head to know whether this was something that was good for me, especially because I was still with my monogamous girlfriend who I was 90% sure would not be on board with this. And so I knew that if I wanted to choose polyamory, this would mean breaking up with her and this was my first girlfriend I was still super duper afraid of what breakups could lead for me and for her emotionally and I guess it uh, it really came to like a fork in the road after Burning Man when I saw that oh yeah this lifestyle is actually way more prevalent than I thought it was it's not just a bunch of people talking online but there are entire camps and villages at Burning Man around that and so yeah, actually, that was my first Burning Man, which was about a year after I moved to the US. And I was still with my ex-girlfriend. Uh, at first, she was not at all into the idea of Burning Man. And I was really into it. And I told her, I'm going to go anyway. And she chose to come with me because she values spending that time with me rather than, than not. And so we had a great time overall, I would say. But she felt like she just checked something off her box and didn't want to do it again. But 
I was hooked. I wanted to just do it again and be more and more involved in making a camp. And we had this conversation about polyamory and we broke up shortly after. And I have not looked back ever since. I would say though, without having a lot of people in my life that I knew directly who were into polyamory, it was hard for me to know exactly what the pitfalls were going to be. I always thought I was doing it right until I realized I wasn't. And even today, like I'm still very open to learning more and changing my mind. I think part of what made it difficult for me is maybe because of my insecurities of not always feeling desired. I was really quick to commit to people that I thought I had some sort of match with without really looking deeper into how to make it work in practice, how to communicate before it's too late, uh, what I really wanted. I was a little bit too used to putting my partner's desires first without realizing that it was eating me on the inside more often than not. I mean, it's a good balance to find. Obviously, you, you cannot be completely selfish and you cannot be completely selfless either in relationships. So I just had to like work to find that balance and it's still a work in progress, but I'm a little bit less afraid of saying no to people now. And I would say that, yeah, being in a place where people are at least aware of what open relationships are makes it a little bit easier, especially when uh, you're in a more traditional social settings like a wedding or uh, when you're supposed to invite only one person. Like I found people were a little bit more understanding that I might have when I want a partner and that there might be more going on. Uh, but sometimes I have friends who live in other states or other countries asking me for polyamory advice and it's hard for me to advise them when the society they live in just does not understand at all that, that concept. Um, so I feel lucky to be here for that, honestly. Incredible, incredible. Um, I would now like to talk about this like super exciting new chapter in your life of, of making music. Mm -hmm. And you repeated something that I heard before of like, you know, this happened and then I never turned back. <laughs> Do you remember where else I heard it uh, in? Mm -hmm. In your car when you picked us up and you told us how you got started with electronic music. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I just feel so much love and passion there mm -hmm. with and so much good connection. And um, I'm also excited to share a bit like what, what it's next for you. So it's more of like a, an old chapter that I never bothered to finish that I am not trying to dust off and finish rather than a completely new chapter. So when I was like 13, I got gifted a hardcore techno CD by a family friend. And none of my friends were into this and took me years to find other people being into this. But I don't know what it was about that CD, but I just really got into the crazy sounds that were into this type of genre and just by extension, electronic music in general. I mean, I guess at that era, there are some EDM that was getting more and more popular in France, especially through Daft Punk. Uh, we all know about them. And uh, they actually went in high school, uh, very close to where I went to high school, but many, many years apart. And yeah, it made me realize that there is something that I want to explore deeper into this type of music. And not knowing anyone else in my group of friends, I was just trying to like grasp at straws as to how to make that type of music, what it means to be an entrenched music artist. The closest thing I could find was 
people being DJs because that's the most visible part of performing as a as an EDM artist most of the time. And so shortly after that, I tried to pick up uh, DJing. So I got some like vinyl turntables, bought a bunch of vinyls. Uh, thanks mom and dad for all the, the pocket money and all the other ones. Pocket money is a, a French translation, argent poche. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so I did that. I took it like more or less seriously for a few years all the way through college. I was actually like a resident DJ at a small club in Paris at some point, like very small club, but it was pretty fun to have a place where I just, just play some nice tracks. Although through that time I had to learn that I will not play hardcore techno in most clubs. I learned to like stick a little bit more to mainstream EDM that my friends and people in college that I went with were more likely to listen to and react to. Uh, especially at that age, if uh, if college kids don't like a music, very often or not, they will come to you and ask you to change it, which uh, used to annoy me so much. Um, and so I guess partly because of that and partly because I realized that being a DJ is only the tip of the iceberg and if you want to really make it as an artist, you have to make your own tracks. Um, I kind of gave that up when I moved to the US. Um, I just kept myself busy with my TED job. I was still hugely into electronic music. I was still listening to it like all day long, which my coworkers made fun of me of because they could see I was headbanging while I was working on my desk, but I didn't mind. And, and it's only like, the past year that I've realized I want to make something that I have full control over, something that I can be proud of. That That's what I was missing in my past job. And I realized there's this music thing that I knew I was really into and I never quite finished because I never focused on making my own music or making my own tracks. And so that's what I'm doing now. I'm just trying to relearn almost from scratch how to make a good track, but this time I'm really trying to get more feedback from my peers. I'm really trying to be more open-minded about learning from others, which I was not 10 years ago. I was really stubborn about doing everything myself, about having that sense of pride in that way. And I don't think I have completely let go of that, to be honest. But I'm trying to find a good balance between uh, personal effort and figuring stuff out myself and knowing when to reach out to people and friends when I need help. And so right now I think I found a pretty good balance between the stuff that I know that I have worked on by myself in music that I can actually contribute if I work with someone and the stuff that I'm missing that I'm hoping uh, an artist collaborator can bring to the table if we work together. And I've just started like working with other artists who have more experience than me. So it's very exciting for me and I hope I can just learn exponentially more from them. Mm -hmm. And uh, you recently got an exciting new tattoo about it. Oh yeah. Yes. And it's your first tattoo. That's right. It's going to look... Yeah, I think... Yeah, that's right. It's going to look ugly because I still have the, the second skin plastic thingy on top of it. But this is actually a detail from one of my favorite synthesizers of all time, the Roland TB303. It's very iconic. It's been used in tons of uh, old school house, techno, all kinds of music, honestly, over the past uh, 30, yeah, 35 years at this point. Um, I also love how it shows like some of the basic waveforms that are used in some synthesizers, like the Sawtooth and the Square Wave. Like these are 
part of the very common vocabulary of uh, electronic music producers. So, yeah, it's my first tattoo and I'm 29, so what's up with that? Um, I've always liked the idea of tattoo, but no one in my family has them, so I just wasn't quite sure what the impact on my life, self-perception, or that job even would be. Um, and I also didn't really know what I would get as a tattoo that I knew I would like for the rest of my life. I'm the type of guy, if you haven't figured out by now, who's really into one thing for like five, six years and then switches to something else completely. Like it was like the music, then it was tech, then it was like photography, which I haven't talked much about, but I used to do that like a lot for like six years. Then it was the van life, then it was music again. So like I was afraid that if I get a tattoo at like 18, 19, 21, uh, I would just hate it in five years. I would just find it like... Uh, too too old or too uh, blasé even, um, and so I realized this type of sound, this type of synthesizer, I have actually loved this to this day, and I don't think I will ever not like this. So, he also it also didn't hurt as much as I thought. So maybe I'll get more, but I don't know which ones. All right, um, I think that's that's covering quite a bit of ground. We can mm -hmm. cover. If we can include a picture of your tattoo if you would like to sure. on the on the Instagram post of the chapter yeah. and um, is there anything that you would like to deepen on the urban exploration which mm -hmm. I think was very unique or the photography or your world traveling uh, are, is there any of these that you think is like super valuable for, or they're all super valuable mm -hmm. but things that maybe you've learned like deeply and appreciate deeply yeah, I guess I haven't talked too much about my photography and urbex uh, in this episode yet, so maybe I can dive a little bit deeper into that. So shortly after moving here, uh, I've been doing a few trips back and forth between uh, the US and Paris, mostly to visit my family, friends sometimes, because I had to renew my visa, so it was kind of forced. And around the same time, I learned about the, the Paris catacombs. Well. When I mean learn, I mean, I always knew that the Paris catacombs existed uh, as a child growing up in Paris. It's not exactly a secret. It's very well documented and you can actually go visit parts of it legally in a museum today. What I mean is I didn't know it was actually worth going to, that there was like an entire subculture of people who just love going into it, taking pictures, partying, doing art, all kinds of things. And... When someone told me about this whole universe, I was just super intrigued. Um, I don't know what it was, but I was always like thinking these places are pretty special. Just knowing that there is a secret area in the city that no one really goes to, that has its own parallel stories in a way. I was really into that, but I was going back and forth between Paris and the US, and I also had no idea how to get there. I mean... So there is the museum part of the catacombs, and then there is a 98% of the network that is technically illegal to go to, that is technically closed. But if you find the right places to enter, then you can get in. And finally found someone to go with, and I was just hooked into the idea of finding these places and the idea of taking pictures of them. What I've realized during my first and second trip to the catacombs is that this is 
a super dark place, which, duh. But it also means that my phone, at least my phone at the time, pre-iPhone 10 with all the three lenses, uh, was terrible at capturing what this place was. I was trying to explain to my friends how cool this was, but my pictures looked like shit. <laughs> and so I realized I want to take better pictures. And that's how I got a camera and a tripod. And I found people in the US who were into that scene as well of like sneaking into abandoned and tunnel places. And I got to learn from them how to take the best kind of pictures from that. And also just general tips of how to get into these places because it's more, more often than not illegal. Sometimes you'll have security watching out or just neighbors or police. So there are like general tips to to do if you want to go there safely. There are some explorers who do not give a damn about being noticed by police. They would just like sneak in really quick, take pictures and leave. But that was not my style. I wanted to keep a low profile if I could, especially since I was on a temporary visa in the US for the longest time. And so this was really fun. I got to develop a really nice uh, community around that that hobby, not just within Paris or within California, but also in like other states. I got to see that there are some cities in the U.S. that I exclusively traveled to just to take pictures of tunnels, and that people were like, "Why are you going to Minneapolis? What what's there in the winter?" And I was like, "Oh, tunnels, people, friends, parties." <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just fun little underground world that you get to to see once you you get into that um so this whole time for like the next six seven years i was just taking pictures categorizing them very cleanly in my photoshop and lightroom folders and in 2018 when i had like enough pictures i realized yeah maybe i should make something to like top it off like physical object or a book uh, NFTs were another thing, then I don't know if I would have done NFT at the time, probably not. But I settled on making a book and I found a publisher who was interested in having a book being about a very specific geographical area. So I settled on the Bay Area because I had the most pictures, but I had urban pictures from other states, other continents even. But so I worked on just compiling that book with like 140 pictures that show like past present and future of the Bay Area through the lens of these places that most people don't really get to see. That is so fascinating. And uh, we will link in the description notes of this episode a lot of your work, mm -hmm. your book, your music, everything that you would like to share with your audience that um, other people can maybe access, it will be there. And I think you are super inspiring. I love your life and you are, have been such a great friend. Thank you for coming to Burning Man with me or for me being able to go with you in your camp. It uh, really means quite a lot to me and I want to keep on going uh, as many years as I can. And uh, thank you for being part of uh, my story and for coming here today. All right? <laughs> <laughs>